0: Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders,
1: Well, Chaz, it's good to get back on here with you. We did this late last year, and the last six months have been pretty busy, and we get our heads down in the day-to-day activities, and we've been spending a lot of time working on closing our latest investment, Landmark Management. So we haven't really had a chance to step back and and take a little stock of where we are and what's going on in the industry. So we thought this might be a fun opportunity to just reset a little bit here at mid-year Midyear and, and share some thoughts. So... Thanks for letting me take the wheel again. Absolutely.
0: I mean, there's been a lot to think through in uh, not just the first half of the year, but in the last few years as kind of the post-COVID era takes more shape. And as we've been evaluating investments and working with the investments that we have, and uh, I think we have a few thoughts today to share with our listeners. So
1: off we go. So I think one of the themes that we've seen bubbling up is the idea of succession. And and clearly it's a topic that's been around and it's part and parcel of what we do. But I, I feel that more conversations over the past six months to a year have centered around succession, both functional and ownership in a way that's affecting strategic priorities and really starting to shape the market a bit. And we probably had a thesis or a hypothesis that this would be the case over time, but it's really been interesting how it seems to have inflected a bit
0: And it's not just recently, although perhaps there seems to have been more of a spotlight both in, in the media, in companies that we work with and that we talk to. And I think part of it, Brad, is just born by the whole key man set of issues, key person dilemmas. And the fact is that I don't think ever in my career that key people, typically type A leading, pioneering founders and senior management, have ever been very good at being particularly thoughtful and time-sensitive and intentional about succession. I think that's part of the issue that we just see bubbling up everywhere.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's almost definitional and that the types of people who lead these organizations tend to lean in, be proactive and love what they do and and aren't in the the business of planning for the end game, but rather trying to take the hill today. And and it's much more fun to do that than to, to think about your own exit and weaning away from from the business, but it's it's an issue that affects everybody, right? We talk about this all the time. We're all getting older, yeah. and there is a transitional element that just has to take place. And it's it's getting harder, I think, in an era where it's it's hard to compete for talent, it's hard to compete for diversity, and finding the next generation of people to take the hill is probably harder than ever.
0: Well, and not just that, and then actually giving them the reins and doing it in a, in a really thoughtful and transparent way such that they and the constituents of the business uh, understand how it's being done thoughtfully. And it's a good thing. I think that way too often, this is a topic which is not thought through well ahead of time. There are not long runways. It is not transparent. I mean, we were talking to a guy the other day, who basically that his his founding partner said, yeah, I know I told you that I would start to slow down after five or seven years and that you would uh, have a lot more responsibility. And this is how it got I changed my mind. And that kind of reaction is just ubiquitous. People, it, it's their company, quote, so they can do whatever they want. But the notion that you just touched on a minute ago, Brad, that this is inevitable. That's That's what's kind of a, a little bit odd that here we are talking about this it's a generational thing. It's inevitable. It's not
1: surprising. Here we are. Right. So what would you tell the the next generation that is wrestling with this? I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to get through to those founders and leaders and convince them otherwise. But really, if you're, if you're behind them and you want a chance to lead and you love the organization, you love the founder, you love everything except for the fact that there's no space being created. How do you coach through that?
0: Well, it's definitely a huge challenge. But I think as the G2 or G3 partners, the up and coming management and partnerships of the firm, you've got to push you got to push in a thoughtful and nice way, and you've got to do it out of logic and what's best for the company. I mean, it's something that we talk about. We try to be this unbiased sounding board with no one's personal interest on the table, just what's good for the company. And what clearly is good for the company is handling all transitions through long runways and being very careful to uh, not just to... A lot of people, I think, view it as, well... What we convey to our constituents, intermediaries, clients, those that we work with is the most important thing. Well, it's obviously really important to make sure that your own colleagues have a really good sense and that you own up to and honor whatever transition path you've set. I mean, it's a lot more, I don't know if it's generic or perfunctory, but it's not perhaps as critical an issue in companies with thousands of employees and Hundreds and hundreds of succession and transition points. And the kinds of companies that we invest in, Brad, as you and I both well know, which are often 20, 30, 50 people, it's super important that those up and coming partners understand how they're to take the mantle, understand how their jobs are to evolve. And then, of course, they've got to be able to live up to the expectations that are set. So I think it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. Expectations have to be clear, and then performance around those expectations have, have got to be measured because I actually think it's really hard for a lot of these key man-driven boutiques to be succeeded on a one-on-one basis, right? That, that not one person will succeed necessarily a CEO or a CIO. I think it increasingly looks to be a band of capable up-and-coming partners.
1: Yeah. Well, part of that is the growth of the firm and the needs of the firm. Part of that is the unique talents of the person who started the business or was leading the business. Often they are very competent at more than one thing and need to be replaced by specialists in different functional areas. Um, And something that you and I have also talked about a lot is the risk appetite of the next generation. And we've spoken to a number of key persons who have bemoaned the fact that They've given away equity. They've compensated their people very, very well. Nobody has anything to complain about, but the next gen just won't step up and buy the equity at the pace or the valuation or to the degree that the key person would like. And that's a really tough, tough challenge. For
0: sure. And you and I see both sides. We have to because we uh, represent and affect both interests in the companies who we are working with and and the kinds of things we're trying to solve for. Look, you and I both know, Brad, that the tax burden, the feasibility of it all, absolute debt levels that such folks would take on, whether or not any of the purchase will be seller financed, what's the multiple? And in a world of seemingly increasing and very high-end multiples, what's the appropriate discount internally? These are all critical questions, which there's going to be a balance. And you know, you're know you either going to solve for it, or I would actually say most cases, it's unsolvable. And that's what leads to we capitulate and we sell. We might like to transition the business internally, but we have
1: too many factors working against us. Well, especially in a market that is pretty robust from a consolidation standpoint and headline multiples, whether they're real or not and applicable to everyone or not tend to catch people's attention. And so when faced with the dilemma of carrying the load up the hill and figuring that out versus selling the business. Sometimes selling can be more attractive. On the other hand, we've run across some people that have different priorities. Maybe they're protective of their legacy or they have a commitment to their clients that they want to sustain. Uh, We see this particularly in wealth management and family office. Um, Or maybe there is an eager G2. I mean, we've we've spoken to a number of G2s that are more eager than the G1s to transition. Perhaps more eager to transition, but
0: likely less eager to
1: take on the same
0: risks that G1 took on. And I think that's one That's one observation I would say that's been consistent for me over decades is I just don't see the same appetite for risk uh, in most, again, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I don't see the same risk appetites in a lot of very capable industry participants in their 30s, 40s, and 50s that we've seen now in founders who are 60s, 70s and beyond, it's a different mindset. And that's why I think in part, Brad, you and I have had such a hard time finding compelling early stage spin out and transitioning businesses. I mean, compared to what you saw in your tenure at SCI and what I've seen and all the time at Rosemont and before, the risk transition, the view on it is not the same and it's not a bad thing. It's just, we need to solve for what kind of keeps a business sustainable. And in our case, we want it to be employee-owned. And, and you know that should be said again, that we're really focused on employee-owned businesses or those that want to become employee-owned. And for, again, the vast majority of the bigger businesses, let's say 50, 100 plus million in EBITDA, they're just not likely to be substantially employee-owned. So kind of becomes a moot point.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the word sustainability that um, provides a convenient pivot point um, for our conversation. And The sustainability of businesses, so the lack of risk-taking for younger up-and-coming folks, I've seen plenty of businesses that have, they've taken the risk, they've done very, very well, and guess what? They've cratered. So as a younger professional, perhaps looking at the industry and saying, I can take a lot of risk, but I also see a lot of fragility in business models. It's perhaps getting harder than ever to do business these days as you need some economies of scale and there's fee pressure and traditional asset management is perhaps seen its best days. What's what's your feeling on the sustainability of businesses in the space? Do you think that it's getting harder to sustain businesses or do you think it's a natural cycle? I think it's getting harder.
0: I, I, I do think it's getting it's always tempting to say, well, you know, we should just be mindful and remember. of how we thought about this issue 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but I really do think that it's harder because I think the industry has just evolved and matured to a point where there are so many more competitors, so many thousands more firms, funds, strategies. So allocators, intermediaries, clients, it's kind of the challenge of how much time do I have to consider all the options now before me and so that's, that's a big issue. But I think sustainability, look, we, you and I have seen some significant meltdowns, Brad, in institutional money management and boutique land. I mean, it's a bit breathtaking that I think every year or two, we hear about firms that have lost 70, 80, 90 plus percent of their asset base. And how does that happen? And the irony, of course, is that you know, whenever you're looking at either an M&A opportunity, an investment opportunity for us, or if you are a potential employee and you're thinking of taking a job with such a firm, not too many people I know would model in sustained carnage and decline. And yet, that's the challenge, whether it's been a year or two or more of really poor performance, which just becomes a death knell and a vicious cycle they can't shake. Uh, whether it becomes an employee, a key employee, active God, unforeseen tragedy, uh, incapacitation issue, there, certainly those are going to continue to happen. Whether it becomes you just really get kind of chronically out of favor, you know, thinking about kind of the traditional US value equity firms, you know, for a good chunk of the last 15 to 20 ish years. There are lots of opportunities to fall down. Let's put it that way, you know, right? I mean, when we see firms that are in consistent positive net flows, when we see firms that have pretty consistent momentum, that are outperforming, not necessarily first quartile, but they're kind of consistently outperforming,
1: what we're realizing is they are really the minority. Yes, and it has gotten more and more competitive. I think the allocators have gotten more sophisticated. Like you said, the option set is bigger than ever. There are different ways to manufacture the portfolio exposures and outcomes. You know, I, I talked to a firm today, actually, that when I asked, it was a wealth management model, and I asked about access to privates, and they said the hypothesis is they don't need to provide access to profit privates, because they can replicate the exposure at much lower cost themselves. I don't know if that's true or not, yeah. but that's the type of innovation that's going on. And it can very quickly disenfranchise firms that are used to competing in a space where maybe the tide goes in, tide goes out, but they'll be one of the principal players there.
0: Well, there's no doubt. And and what you're touching on as well, Brad, is just the influence of the passive world, active ETFs, what artificial intelligence will do probably in the next few years to basically be able to mimic so much of what the investment management community has created through its people and through its traditional resources. Now we've got these untraditional resources and I, I think it's going to be harder and harder to sustain yourself. And look, we know that as investors for our capital, Markel's capital, that's the name of the game. Of course, we need to grow, but you can't grow when you're shrinking. And so the kinds of considerations that we're often making is, has the management team been really thoughtful about the spread and the capability? And do they have great leadership? at all points functionally. Have they thought through that equity equation? And is it a sustainable equity equation? Or is it kind of heading for a brick wall? How, If they're an investment engine, how sharp is that investment engine? I think you and I would say that there are very few investment engines these days that really stand out over 10-year-plus periods, which is really what we're looking at. We, We could care less about the hot dot. It's almost a negative. Yeah,
1: well, I do think there's a lot of excess capacity, mediocre capacity that will be stripped out of the industry over the next five to 10 years. I think that's been going on and will continue to go on, whether through M&A or just companies deciding to, uh, to hang up their cleats. I think it's interesting that a lot of the conversations that we're having with managers have started to show recognition of the need to become more sustainable whether it's proactive or reactive, we hear more talking about access to new end markets. You know, the certainly the wealth management RIA market, as some like to call it, as a, as a distribution channel for asset managers has gained a lot of attention um, and, and is forcing them to rethink the way they approach distribution. New vehicles, you know, moving away from a mutual fund or just separate account or mutual fund structure to add active etfs or other pooled vehicles, model delivery, all of that is starting to to become more and more commonplace. And then the addition of complementary products, whether through MA, you know, build versus buy type of discussions. And they may be natural, they may be unnatural. I mean there's certainly logical extensions. If you have a US investment engine, maybe it makes sense to go with non-US and and build on expertise. Um, I know of a quant manager that's working on that. Um, and sometimes it's less naturally. You're a long, traditional long-only manager, and you're looking to go out and pick up an ALTS platform and, and diversify the business. It's interesting to see more activity there from a strategic standpoint.
0: But I think that one of the conclusions that you and I have come to is that in general, the more solutions-oriented businesses, so wealth, advisory, OCIO, Businesses that are less dependent, much less dependent on quarterly investment performance, and who have multiple other toeholds in their client relationships and, and other key points of stickiness, those factors in themselves make those businesses more sustainable. And I think that's contributing to the fact, especially when you see this in MA wealth management, it's an alternatives, it is not in traditional institutional money management. So I'm convinced that we're going to continue to see a lot more activity a lot more
1: combining self-evaluation, new bedfellows. I think you're right. I I mentioned earlier that I saw the PwC survey that came out that said that 73% of asset managers are contemplating a combination. I I don't know what the number normally is, but that seems pretty high to me. It seems like there are a lot of conversations going on in boardrooms about what do we do. Um, And that one in six firms will disappear over the next six years, which feels like a lot.
0: You know, it it does, Brad, but I actually don't think that's very provocative. I I think that's probably a very reasonable estimate. And by quote, disappear, I think that means not exist in the current form they are today and under the same name and ownership, et cetera. So I think they will be subsumed by others. I think going straight out of business, I mean, we, we talked about those and those are the more sensational issues, but I think the more common case. More common than perhaps the 16-ish percent projected to disappear will just be more the kind of walking wounded, Hmm. kind of the dead man walking. I mean, really, we're not being pejorative. I mean, you look up whether it's the databases on the institutional crowd, or you just kind of are able to get information on any firm's growth of the last few years, and you separate market from net flows. There are very few firms that have consistently positive net flows. So you take the other side of that. Okay, we have largely negative net flows. Our proposition is diminished. There's more competition. And then oftentimes add to the impact which we started this conversation. There are people at the helm in their 60s, 70s, 80s who don't necessarily, they're not ready to roll the dice again or make significant reinvestment. In the future of the business, it's time to get off the Ferris wheel. It's time to figure out, you know, one's own transition, liquidity. What are my personal answers as I as I move towards the later stages of life, which could be completely incongruous with the interests of the more active members of the
1: team? that's fair and and for those that are seeing their business facing some headwinds and looking to make a change to their trajectory going out and acquiring something that is in demand is often going to be very expensive and that creates an whole new host of issues but these are the types types of things that that we've been talking about and I think uh you know enjoyed the conversations I these are the types of things that we are talking about with our partners and, and prospects and, and other industry participants. and I, I think they' they're very important topics.
0: There's no question that there's going to be a lot more of these kinds of considerations on the table for all types of firms and we'll continue to be a very interested bystander and investor. And hopefully we'll have some market cooperation in the second half of the year. But if we don't, we still got to be able to put one foot in front of the other and keep going. Well, if nothing else, it'll
1: be interesting. Brad, always great to talk. Yep. Likewise. Thanks for the catch-up.